Good morning, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and this is September 10, 2023. We are in the midst of these lectures on the bioenergetic axis of sexual dimorphism, and we're going to continue with that. Uh, this is chapter 14. I hadn't mentioned it, but I often listen to music while I'm uh, composing these lectures. And um, the last couple were actually influenced heavily, uh, at least at some cerebral level, from Beethoven's Piano Concerto Number no. 5 and E flat major. That's also known as the Emperor. But today's lecture is specifically influenced by listening to a wonderful piece by Mozart, the Flute and Harp Concerto in C, and that's K299 in his catalog. So think of Mozart when you listen to this lecture. All right. Now, we were talking about thyroglobulin. Remember, we got deeply into the thyroxine, thyroxine and the audination pathway for the thyroid hormone. So let me pick up where I was uh, cut off and get into that because this is all part of thyroiditis. Particularly, we're going to get into Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is far more common in women than men. Okay, so remember, this is what we're doing. We're doing distinguishing features of pathologies that are either in women and men. Now, interestingly, many of the diseases we've been talking about are more prone in women. It's difficult to find male-specific diseases because many of the major causes of death such as cancer and cardiovascular disease, are or tend to be more profoundly associated with men. Okay, now that may have a lot to do with how long men live and the progression of those diseases and then becoming uh, mortal wounds, right? And we haven't gotten into that because that goes back into aging. What I'm trying to look at are diseases that are specifically associated with male versus female. That's why I'm trying to stay away. Plus, we've talked so much about cancer, so much about cardiovascular disease. Um, going into that would mean this would run into, again, dozens and dozens of lectures, which I think we've already covered in other arcs. Okay. Now, the I, I left off saying the iodination of thyroglobulin. You have a protein kinase A. That phosphoryl, it can, it's, a, it's a kinase, so it phosphorylates many proteins. But one of the proteins that phosphorylates specific to our discussion was that thyroid peroxidase. Now, remember that thyroid peroxidase, that's, that's going to be the TPO enzyme, is involved in those three major biochemical sequences that finally generate the thyroid hormone. Those are called oxidation, organification, and coupling. So oxidation simply means TPO uses hydrogen peroxide to, oxi to oxidize iodide, that's I minus, to I2. The NADPH oxidase, which is actually an apical enzyme, generates that hydrogen peroxide for the TPO. Okay? The organification is when TPO links tyrosine residues of the thyroglobulin polypeptide with the now formed I2. What you generate then, what the cell generates then, is mono 
iodotyrosine. It's MIT and diiodotyrosine, DIT. MIT has a tyrosine residue with tyrosine, and DIT has a tyrosine residues with two molecules of iodine. Okay. Coupling reaction is TPO combines the iodinated tyrosine residues to make triiodothyronine. That's the T3, remember? It also, those are also used to synthesize tetraiodothyronine, or T4. So MIT and DIT join to form T3, and two DIT molecules form T4. All right, understood. Now, the storage aspect here is thyroid hormones are bound to thyroglobulin for storage in the follicular lumen. The release is when the thyroid hormone is then secreted into fenestrated capillary networks by the thyrocytes. And this is what occurs here. The thyrocytes take up iodinated thyroglobulin via endocytosis. Lysosome fuses with an endosome containing the iodinated thyroglobulin. Proteolytic processing or convertase activity in the endolysosome cleaves thyroglobulin back into MIT, DIT, and also T3 and T4. That's correct. Then T3, which is now comprising about 20% of the population of the uh, TH, of the thyroid hormone, and T4, the 80%, are released into the fenestrated capillaries via a monocarboxylic acid transporter number eight. The deiodinase enzymes remove iodine from DIT and MIT. Iodine can then be salvaged and redistributed back to the intracellular iodide pool. So that's the way that functions. Now, a paper that was published in Journal of Immunology Research in 2021, which we're going to talk about now, and then we're going to get back to later, is very important. This paper's work was to study which genes are increased, neutral, or decreased in Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Okay, so what this paper identified was some 182 differentially expressed genes, of which 160 were upregulated in the thyroiditis. Again, a disease that's much more common in women than men. Remember, that's why we're doing this. And again, this is a, an autoimmune disease, right? Damages the thyroid gland okay? because of the immune response, right? So 160 upregulated and only 22 downregulated. They're called DEGs, right? Differentially expressed genes. Now, among the 182 DEGs, what was significant was that interleukin-7 receptor was downregulated in female HT patients, female being a much more robust population that gets Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Now, the protein encoded for that gene is, of course, the receptor for IL-7, interleukin-7. And it plays a key role, it's one of the roles of that receptor, okay, and of the interleukin-7 indirectly, in VDJ recombination. 
that's generating what? Generating immunoglobulin series and generating T cell receptor isoform series because of recombination. It's correct. This is all occurring during lymphocyte development. So it's a, so this particular aspect is really important for T cell development and then homeostasis. The function of this receptor requires the interleukin-2 receptor gamma chain. And that interleukin-2 gamma chain is found in multiple cytokine receptors. I'm just giving you that as a detail because we've talked about that before. Now, here's some really interesting aspects of this that I've been able to pull out of the literature. CD8-positive memory cells, these are TM cells, are essential in the immune defense against a typical infection. They're memory cells. There are two common gamma-chain family cytokines. wonder what they are, IL-2, IL-7. <laughs> Although triggering both of those, even though they're distinct, they trigger the same mTORC1 S6K pathway. But they distinctly induce effector T cells and TM cells, respectively. Now, what's a TM cell? I'm going to tell you in a minute. TEs are just T effector cells. So interleukin-2 turns on T effector cells. Interleukin-7 still working through mTORC1 S6K, which we've also talked about quite a bit in biochemistry. That route, that particular journey from interleukin-7 binding to this receptor, turning on mTORC and S6K, will turn on the TM cells. Okay? Now, in the paper we're talking about right here, which is a paper published in the Journal of Immunology in 2022, so we're going to get back to Journal of Immunological Research 2021, which was doing this huge array of genes in Hajimoto's thyroiditis. Now we're in a 2022 paper, okay? Okay, and all this will be in the show notes. Let me tell you what I found. First of all, in this paper, they're looking at that pathway. And what they did is they generated a couple of different mice. Okay, this is going to be a murine model. They generate an interleukin-7 receptor minus and an AMP kinase alpha-1 knockout. Okay? That's a particular mouse. Those are mouse knockout derivatives. Okay? Now, removal of the interleukin-7 receptor, that KO, what did they get as a phenotype in the mouse? It abolished T-cell memory differentiation. And they studied this using listeria, monocytogenes infection. Okay, so that's the way they turned on the memory cell, because these are cell, this, obviously the, the memory cells for that particular um, infection. Now, I'm going to tell you what TM cells are. TM cells are called trabecular meshwork cells. Yes. And they are phagocytic cells. They're of that family. And they utilize the mechanotransduction sequence to activate and regulate intraocular pressure at the eye. Now, they're similar to macrophages, although they're unique to the eye, right? 
Again, they're called trabecular meshwork in their phagocytic cells. Similar to macrophages, they express scavenging receptors and they participate in the APC antigen presentation within the immunosuppressive milieu of the anterior eye. Okay? Now, that particular description of TM cells was published in the journal Frontiers in Immunology in 2022. So that's the third paper I've mentioned just in the last five minutes. This is what we do in authentic biochemistry, deep into details, as being, of course, influenced positively by that Mozart piece. <laughs> All right, now, they wanted to look at the molecular pathways that were impacted by this alteration of T memory of of T effector cells versus trabecular meshwork cells, which are phagocytic cells, right? All right. So they performed flow cytometry. They did Western blots. They did microscopy. They did all of this work, okay? And what they used were the interleukin seven, what they call S6K weak stimulated TM. And they had the, that those are called the IL7 TMs. And the control was the interleukin 2 SK6 strong simulated T effector cells. And those are just called IL2 TE cells. Okay, so you got IL7 TMs, IL2 TEs. Okay, good. Now, what they found was that the IL7 S6K weak signal cells. Now those are again now TM cells. What happens is they activate transcriptional FOXO1, TCF1, and ID3, as well as metabolically phosphorylated AMP kinase alpha 1 and two other really important intermediary metabolism proteins, phosphorylated OK1 and an ATG7. This all occurred in the interleukin-7 TM cells. So interleukin-7 TM cells upregulate interleukin-7R, as well as CD62L, 6, promoting, now when that happens, when interleukin-7 is functioning as a receptor, it promotes mitochondrial biogenesis, fatty acid beta-oxidation, and long-term cell survival and functional, what they call recall response in immunology. What does that mean? Recall response is a functional memory cell activity in these TM cells. Now, what they found was in, in AMPK-alpha-1 deficiency, what they get there, that abolishes the AMPK-alpha-1 activity, yeah but it maintains the FOXO1 pathway. And what occurs there is a metabolic switch from beta oxidation of fatty acids to glycolysis. Okay. Now, when that happens in the AMP kinase alpha-1 knockout, IL-7 TM cells is a loss of TM cell survival and of 
memory cell response. So what that says, when you put that all together, is that interleukin-7 stimulates the weak induction of the mTORC S6K signaling. And it appears that there is a distinction between interleukin-2 and interleukin-7 in T-cell memory. And what this whole paper that I'm talking about was more interested in was vaccine development. Because this means poor vaccine response because you're not getting a memory cell response. You see. Okay. So now we're, now we're back to this. CDA positive T cells, the paper published in Nature Immunology in 2020, respond to chronic infections and also tumors when they arise. What happens when that occurs, when there's a response of CDA positive T cells, is you get exhaustion. And that exhaustion of those cells at the, at, for example, a tumor microenvironment or at a site of infection, you get an elevated expression of inhibitory receptors. And we know this because that's why there is the whole um, program death ligand, right? And program and CTL4 activity, trying to block program death. Because when you get an exhausted CDA positive T cell, it's because you increase the activity because of increased expression of the PD-1 receptor. It's program death, right? When program death, program death receptor binds a program death ligand, what happens? The T cells no longer function. This is what tumors do. Tumors generate, and they also induce the expression of the PD-1, which is a receptor necessary for the ligand to function to exhaust the T cells, thus allowing the tumor to progress or the inflammation to be halted, you see, in that environment. For example, during infection. So more prone to infection. Right? Now, Exhausted T cells are often replenished by T cells with precursor characteristics. And what those will allow for in this setting of infection or in tumor microenvironment is a renewal. All of that's dependent on the transcription factor, TCF1. However, this paper that I'm looking at now looked at high antigen load. And high antigen load promotes, for example, in an active infection, the differentiation of precursor T cells, which generate a phenotype of exhaustion within days of active infection. So it's the early effector cells which retain their polyfunctional features. And the early precursor T cells are showing or demonstrating epigenetic imprinting characteristic of T cell receptor dependent transcription factor binding. And that becomes restricted to the generation of cells displaying exhaustion phenotype. Okay. 
So transcription factors like the BAC2 and the BATF are regulating this with opposing functions because this involves then the alteration of phenotype and generation thereby of early precursor T cells. So exhaustion manifests first in the TCF1 positive precursor T cells, and then it becomes propagated subsequently to the pool of antigen-specific T cells. These would be ones that have memory, you see? So an upregulated T cell transcription factor gene ID3 displays an opening of chromatin, this is an epigenetic phenomena, at nearby regulatory regions. So I told you about the this uh, transcription factor TCF1. Now I'm telling you about ID3, okay? And again, the reason we're doing this is because, remember back at the interleukin-7 receptor, you had effects on TCF1 and ID3, but not on FOXO1 when it's related to the AMP kinase cascade. Okay, I'm getting into the biochemical pathophenotype of Hajimoto's by stitching together these papers. Okay, these papers are not looking directly at thyroiditis, Hajimoto's thyroiditis. I'm linking what's known about these various transcription factors and T cell exhaustion in other studies and trying to put together what's happening pathophenotypically in that thyroiditis, which remains, according to the publications, even in 2023, a month ago, a cult. I think that we can find something in the literature which could open this up. That's why I'm talking about this transcription factor of TCF1 and by ID3. And we talked about ID3 before in the immunoepigenetics lectures. Go back and listen to those. You're going to be, you're going to recall right now, because I'm going to tell you this. What is ID3? It's a member of a family of helix loop helix transcription factors. Remember that? However, it doesn't bind DNA directly. ID3 inhibits other transcription factors from binding to the response elements of the DNA. Therefore, ID3 lacks that specific, basic, remember, DNA binding sequence motif. So T-cell antigen receptor-driven signaling initially decreases the abundance of ID3, which leads to the activation of follicular regulatory T-cell-specific transcription. However, a sustained lower abundance of ID2 or ID3, they both work the same way, interferes with proper development even of the T follicular cells. So the depletion of ID2 and ID3 expression in T reg cells results in compromised maintenance and localization of T reg cell populations. So while ID3 enforces T follicular cell checkpoint, it also controls the homing and robust activity of Tregs. Now, what does that mean? When you lose the activity of Tregs, what occurs? Hyperinflammatory response because the T effector cells are rendered hyperactive without the regulation by the Tregs. You see, 
this is a direct link to the inflammatory response, perhaps in Hajimoto's thyroiditis, something I believe could be looked at. Because we know that the T cell um, system there in, in uh, Hajimoto's, what they found there, that paper that was looking at the screening of all the genes, was a downregulation down of interleukin-7. I just told you what interleukin-7 normally does. Maintains T-Reg. Okay? So let me put this together because I realize I'm getting deep into this. But again, it's just following the logical progression here. I'm doing nothing more than util utilizing um, premises followed by conclusions followed by new premises and new conclusions. So generating hypothetical deductions, then looking at the experiments that have been done, looking at the data and the evidence from those experiments, making an induction, which then becomes, can be transformed into making a hypothetical deduction to the next paper. So these papers weren't linked that way from one person linking them and coming up with these various experiments years apart some of them retro, which would be pretty hard to do, right? Work done before the subsequent work was done. But I'm showing you how a research scientist can analyze the literature and carry out that a priori synthetic response, putting together the literature so that you understand what is already published. That's what we're doing in authentic biochemistry. Not only do you become exposed to it as information, which doesn't really do anyone any good. Information by itself is meaningless. You have to have the skills of powerful phenomenological reasoning so that you can link the faculties of the understanding and the faculties of the imagination together with mentation, that tripartite activity of the faculties of reason to be able to assimilate what's in the published literature and come up with an understanding of what's there to then move to the next step, which is to hypothesize you know, below the thesis, hypothesis, to generate a deductive process to come up with experiments and continue to study it. Okay, That's whatever the particular topic is. So in a paper published way back in 2011, in Nature Immunology, ID3 minus Treg cells. What happens? Now remember, Treg cells express a transcription factor of FOXP3. So that's what that's card carrying Treg cell, right? When so when what happens when ID3 is knocked out? These FOXP3 cells without ID3 cannot block, or they find a deficiency in blocking E47, SPIB, and SOXS3. Now, all of those transcription factors downstream from ID3 expression, which is no longer being expressed in these knocked out Treg cells means that FOXP3 expression becomes down-regulated. What happens when FOXP3 transcription factor expression 
becomes down-regulated in a card-carrying T-reg cell because of ID3 knockout, BOXP3 uh, T-reg cell no longer can block the effector T-cell activity. And the result? A hyper-inflammatory response. You don't have the T-reg control over effector cells. This is what could be happening in Hajimoto's thyroiditis. It is a pro-inflammatory trigger. Okay. Now, I'm going to take this time because we now we've gotten into, because we talked about um, Frank changeover. Remember the changeover from fatty acid oxidation to glycolysis and a very robust TCA cycle, a electron transport chain, bioenergetic process. Now, that was all the result of high levels of a T-cell receptor response, particularly linked to IL-7, right? Now, we're telling you that that whole activity is altered. It's altered in such a way that it promotes it promotes the possibility of switching bioenergetics from fatty acid metabolism to glycolysis and back okay so the next lecture is going to be all about doing the canonical bioenergetics and it's going to be just the beginning of the lecture then we're going to get right back into this thyroiditis right dr dan goera 10 September 2023, Authentic Biochemistry, uh, saying bye for now.